0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is knowing who we are and where we are going. In the first half, Barry Willardson and Michael William Morgan share their addresses, strangers and pilgrims on the earth, and our identities at BYU and beyond. Then in the second half, Diane Strong-Kraus speaks on, Be Anchored in Order to Soar.
1: Today is July 14th. For most, it is just another hot summer day. But for those with French connections, it is the Fête Nationale, the day that France celebrates its independence. Every July 14th, I am reminded of my missionary service in France and Belgium years ago. One July 14th, my missionary companions and I watched from the port of Calais as the fireworks burst over the English Channel in beautiful celebration of French freedom. It was a wonderful time for me, the last summer months of my mission, among a people who I had come to love and with whom I had labored to build faith and trust in God. Their faith had been terribly challenged by the ravages of war and other events, but some received the message of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ and have been greatly blessed by its teachings. Faith in God our Father and His Son Jesus Christ is a powerful force that moves souls and nations to look to the heavens for understanding of the purposes of life on earth. For me, some of the most powerful verses of scriptures are those that enumerate the exploits of the faithful, as in Hebrews chapter 11 of the New Testament and Ether chapter 12 of the Book of Mormon. In Ether, Moroni tells us that Faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not because you see not, for you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. He then reminds us of the immovable faith of Alma and Amulek, Ammon and his brethren, Helaman's sons, Nephi and Lehi, and the brother of Jared. In Hebrews 11, the Apostle Paul wrote of the faith of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. Of Abraham and Sarah, Paul states, By faith Abraham, when he was called out to go into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. Paul continues, Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand by which is the seashore innumerable. Then referring to all these noble souls, Paul makes a statement that captures our attention. All these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth." What is Paul teaching us in this passage? Is he saying that these great ones understood that this earth was not their home, but rather a stopover on their way through eternities? This is one of the compelling questions of mankind. Are we truly strangers and pilgrims on the earth, and is there more to our existence than meets the eye? Here we live, on this small but beautiful blue planet. We each make our way through life doing what we want or what others convince us to do, but what is the purpose of it all? My background is in the sciences, and scientists seek to understand the great questions of life by making observations. One of the most inspiring scientific endeavors of our time has been the exploration of our universe through the Hubble Space Telescope. Although I have no expertise in astrophysics, the subject fascinates me, probably as the result of watching too many episodes of Star Trek as a boy. (laughs) This year marks the 25th anniversary of Hubble's launch. During those 25 years, a near-constant stream of data has been coming from Hubble that has taught us much. One experiment, called the Extreme Deep Space Project, focused the telescope on the small region of sky apparently devoid of stars and collected light at different times over a ten-year period, logging over 500 hours. The Hubble images showed that this region was not devoid of stars at all, but contained 5,500 galaxies, averaging about 100 billion stars each. The light from the most distant galaxies had been traveling for about 13 billion years before being collected by Hubble. From these data, astronomers have estimated that there are 200 billion galaxies in the universe, each with an average of 100 billion stars per galaxy. Doing the math gives two times ten to the 22nd stars in the universe—an absolutely mind-boggling number. By measuring the distance to these galaxies and how quickly they are moving away from us, and combining this data with other observations of the early universe, astrophysicists have calculated that the universe is about 13.7 billion years old and is growing in size at a faster and faster rate. For this accelerated expansion to be possible, about 70% of the universe must be something astronomers term dark energy because we don't know what it is. For me, the grandeur of it all is eloquently captured by the words of our music, If You Could Eye to Kolob, written by W. W. Phelps. When he penned the words of the hymn, Brother Phelps did not have the vision of the Hubble telescope, but he had the vision of Joseph Smith, and Joseph had the vision of God. So how and why did all of this come to be And where do we fit in this great expanse of space? Science struggles to address these questions. However, there are other very important ways to learn truth. Again, the Apostle Paul taught in writing to the Corinthians, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Paul continues, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Thus God can reveal His existence, purposes, and truths to us by spiritual means that are just as real as physical scientific observations. This is what happened to Moses on the mountain. Millennia before the Hubble telescope, God spoke with Moses face to face and gave Moses a view of his creations. This experience is recorded in Moses chapter 1 of the Pearl of Great Price. And it came to pass that Moses looked and beheld the world upon which he was created. And Moses beheld the worlds and the ends thereof, and all the children of men, which are and which were created. And of the same he greatly marveled and wondered." In response to this experience, Moses exclaimed, Now for this cause I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. Perhaps we also feel a sense of insignificance when attempting to fathom the vastness of creation. However, later in this revelation, God taught Moses the purpose of his creations. And the Lord God spake unto Moses, saying, The heavens, they are many. And they cannot be numbered unto man, but they are numbered unto me, for they are mine. And as one earth shall pass away, and the heavens thereof, even so shall another come. And there is no end to my works, neither to my words. For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. In this transcendent passage, God reveals that the purpose of this vast creation is for us, for our happiness, for our eternal progression. So where were we during this marvelous creation? The Lord asked the same question to Job, saying, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? One of the most essential truths of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are spirit children of the great Creator Himself, and we call Him Father because this is our true relationship to Him. Knowing this relationship explains why He created all of these things for us. Prior to our life here on earth, we lived with Him, and we were present and witnessed our earth's creation and shouted for joy because of it. This is why we truly are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For me, one of the most beautiful expressions of this truth was penned by the poet William Wordsworth, which he came to understand without hearing the message of the restored gospel. He wrote, Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. So if we have come from God, then why are we here? On occasion, it may seem like it would have been better just to stay put. Living with our Father in Heaven must have been wonderful, so why go to the trouble? This thought reminds me of something my father-in-law, Jean-Marichal, would often quip— in his native French language, exclaiming, Qui m'a poussé dedans? which translated means, Who pushed me in? He would say this mostly, but not entirely in jest. The answer to why we are here was revealed clearly to Abraham, as recorded in the Pearl of Great Price. Now the Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was. And among all these, there were many of the noble and great ones. And God saw these souls, that they were good. And he stood in the midst of them, and he said, These I will make my rulers. For he stood among those that were spirits, and he saw that they were good. And he said unto me, Abraham, thou wast one of them, thou wast chosen before thou wast born. And there stood one among them that was likened to God. And he said unto those that were with him, We will go down, for there is space there. And we will take of these materials, and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell. And we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. And they who keep their first estate shall be added upon, and they who keep not their first estate shall not have the glory in the same kingdom as those who keep their first estate. And they who keep their second estate, shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. Herein lies the answer to the great question of the purpose of life. We are here to learn to trust in God to the point that we do whatever He asks, and in so doing we become as He is. It seems to me that the most important thing we can do in life is to find out if this really is true, that God is our Father— that we are strangers and pilgrims on the earth, and that we are here to become like our Father. So how do we come to this knowledge? The process begins by hearing of these things from those who know. That is why we send missionaries throughout the world. My youngest daughter, Eva, is currently serving one of those missions on the Reunion and Mauritius Islands in the Indian Ocean, about as far away from here as is physically possible on earth. Many of you were in similar situations as missionaries, and perhaps some of you are here today because your hearts burned as the missionaries taught you of your divine origins and the purpose of life. Hearing and pondering these things will lead us to pray, and through prayer our Father can tell us Himself that He is there and that we are His children. Let me share an experience with you. While serving as a missionary in France, not long after the July 14th celebration I referred to earlier, my companion and I had spent the day working with the other missionaries in the city of Nancy. We were scheduled to travel that night to Strasbourg, about a two-hour drive away on the German border. I had returned in the evening with the missionary I was with and was waiting in the apartment for my companion to return. He and the other missionary finally arrived a little after 10 p.m., apologizing for the late hour and explaining that they had been in a spirited discussion with an atheist who was trying to convince them of the error of their ways. We quickly packed our things and were on the road. While driving, my companion talked about the conversation with the atheist. The arguments were all too familiar to me. God may exist, but there is no way to know for sure. And if he does exist, then he doesn't care about us, or he would have stopped all the terrible events of the world. Furthermore, our belief in God was a deception that made us feel better about our lives, but the reality was that when we died, there was nothing. We talked about these issues and how difficult it is for a person of that type to even want to know the reality of God. For some reason, my companion's encounter left me perturbed. Not because I was shaken by the arguments, for I had heard them many times, but because I was wearied by the unbelief of these people among whom I had spent so much time and with whom I had come to care about. I can remember looking up into the night sky as we drove and seeing it filled with stars. We almost never saw the stars because they were obscured by the city lights or by clouds, However, we were now far from the city, traveling through the Vosges Mountains, and the skies were clear. As I gazed upon the night sky, I had this overwhelming impression that God was in his heaven and in control. I commented to my companion, wondering how anyone could look up into the night sky and not feel the same thing. I was in the same state of mind when we arrived in Strasbourg around midnight. We apologized to our missionary hosts for the late arrival and laid out our bedding, which consisted of a foam pad and a sleeping bag on the floor for each of us. I knelt on mine to pray, as was my nightly routine. However, this prayer turned out to be anything but routine. As I prayed to myself, I thought of the events and emotions of that night, and I pleaded, Dear Father, I need to know if you are really there if I am going to continue in this work among such an unbelieving people. As soon as that phrase formed in my mind, I was enveloped by an intense spiritual energy which pulsed through my body from my head to my toes and settled upon me. It was a warm, comforting feeling that stayed with me for a long time. It was the witness of the Holy Spirit to me that God was there and He had heard my prayer. I finished praying and lay down to sleep, but the feeling would not go away. I lay basking in this powerful yet sweet sensation for some time until it slowly dissipated and I drifted off to sleep. Since then I have never doubted the existence of God. I know He answered me. More than thirty years later, it is still vivid in my mind. I do not know how the Spirit of God interfaces with our mortal physiology. But it is powerful and unlike any other emotion, it cannot be explained away. So, once we have come to know our relationship with our Father in heaven and our purpose in life, then our path is set before us. However, part of the prove them herewith clause of the plan is to stay on the path and never forget the knowledge we have gained. Remembering our origins and the purposes of our life is key to our success here on earth. Remembering is one of the important themes of the Book of Mormon. Listen to the words of Helaman to his sons Nephi and Lehi. And now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation. Furthermore, it is for this same purpose that each week we take the sacrament in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice and promise to always remember Him and keep His commandments. Yet sometimes we forget. Our vision blurs and we don't live up to the knowledge we have received. In such situations, perhaps we can learn something more from the Hubble telescope—not from its amazing images, but from its near failure. To the horror of all those involved, when the first images came back from Hubble, they were blurred and out of focus. The shape of Hubble's mirrors were off about one-fiftieth the thickness of a human hair because of a few missing chips of paint that had thrown off the laser-guided measuring tool used to polish the mirrors. Many thought that Hubble would be forever useless. However, with a Herculean effort by NASA scientists and astronauts, Correction mirrors were designed and installed in space, removing the aberration. Making the repairs in space was so intricate that the team of astronauts spent 20 months practicing the procedure, with 400 hours underwater to simulate zero gravity, rehearsing on a makeup of Hubble. The repairs proceeded flawlessly, and NASA scientists celebrated in joy and relief when they saw the first crystal-clear images coming from the telescope. There is a great lesson to be learned from correcting Hubble's vision. Sometimes small flaws can put our lives out of focus, and we cannot see our divine origins. In such circumstances, our lives need not be scrapped like a piece of interstellar junk, but correcting mirrors can be installed thanks to something more than a Herculean effort— that we call the Atonement of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one who came forward in that grand council in heaven, presenting himself with the words, Here am I, send me. He was the one who was faithful when facing unimaginable suffering, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. We can trust in Him and in His power to make things right again, and our lives can someday reflect views even more glorious than those from the repaired Hubble telescope. At some point, sooner or later, our time as mortals on this earth will end, and we will learn that we were truly strangers and pilgrims here. This fact became devastatingly clear to me 18 months ago, when my younger brother Kendall died suddenly of a heart attack seemingly in full health, and just weeks after being released as bishop of his ward. His ward loved him, especially the youth. Professionally, he worked at the hospital in our small town and was similarly loved by the patients and by his co-workers. Our family was emotionally shaken to its core by this tragedy, but our faith was not. We knew the promises of the Resurrection— And we had felt the power of the witness of Mary at the open tomb as she turned in hearing Jesus call her name, of the disciples on the road to Emmaus as their hearts burned within them while they conversed unknowingly with the resurrected Lord, of the apostles gathered together in fear and wonder of the events of that first Easter, and then in what must have been utter joy as they felt the prints of the nails, in his hands and in his feet. And of the Nephite multitude, as Jesus ministered unto them in power and glory, Jesus has overcome death, and as a result, so will we. This tragedy gave me great cause for reflection about my life and how I should spend the rest of my days. It also motivated me to have my physical heart carefully examined. One test was a cardiac perfusion test, in which you walk on a treadmill to get your heart rate up, and then you receive an injection with a radioactive tracer. You are placed in a scanner that follows the tracer as it circulates through your heart. During the test, you must lie very still under the scanner for some time to not disturb the imaging. As I lay there, I closed my eyes, trying to relax, wondering how my heart was performing in this test. Suddenly, without opening my eyes, I saw my brother walk past the scanner. He was dressed in his hospital scrubs, looking young and healthy. He moved past me to the other room where the monitor was showing the results of the scan. In my amazement, my first thought was, What are you doing here? And then the realization hit me that he was concerned about my well-being and wanted to know the results of the test. This view was gone in an instant, and I was left to contemplate it. The act was so typical of him doing what he did in life, caring for others. From this and many other experiences, I too confess that we are strangers and pilgrims on the earth, that life continues after our mortal bodies fail us, that our loved ones who have gone before know us and are there to help us. Alma declared this truth in saying, The spirits of all men, as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, yea, the spirits of all men, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. And then shall it come to pass that the spirits of those who are righteous are received into a state of happiness, which is called paradise, a state of rest, a state of peace, where they shall rest from all their troubles and from all care and sorrow. I testify that this is so. Let me close with the final words of Brother Phelps' hymn. There is no end to glory. There is no end to love. There is no end to being. There is no death above. May we all live and love and serve to the measure of this knowledge. In the name of Him who makes it all possible, even our Savior Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You're listening to Finding Center, We've just heard from Barry Willardson, and now we'll hear from Michael William Morgan for his address, Our Identities at BYU and
2: Beyond. I'm honored to be here today. It is a testament that BYU's education works when a freshman as awkward as I was can enter BYU and emerge ready for the workforce. I can honestly say that my BYU experience has changed who I am for the better. I'm sure many of you feel the same. When I say BYU changed who I am for the better, I do not mean only that I have a more developed skill set to offer employers. I hope I do, but also I believe my BYU experience changed how I view myself at a fundamental level. That is the topic of my short speech. I'd like to share how my BYU experience affected my personal identity i'll also attempt to tackle something more important that has been pointing an essential part of our identity that will endure despite any life experiences that come our way let me give you an example of how byu changed who i am during my education i identified myself as a straight-a student until economics 110 <laughs> that class shattered what I thought was a big part of my identity. And that was my first semester at BYU. Oddly enough, this perceived failure helped me find a deeper identity. Whereas I used to identify myself as a 4.0 student, my experience with Economics 110 forced me to change this. And instead, I started to identify myself not by my GPA, but by my work ethic. Identifying myself apart from my grades helped me choose to graduate with honors. Writing my honors thesis turned out to be more difficult than I expected, and there were times where I was tempted to give up. I could have, because it wouldn't have affected my GPA. But I finished because I identified myself, not by my grades, but as a hardworking student who finishes what I start. Looking back, the decision to finish my thesis allowed for one of the best memories I have of my undergraduate studies. Dr. Dave Jensen, one of my professors from the philosophy department, taught me this principle. The way we view ourselves affects our choices. In other words, we choose to do things that align with our self-perceptions. People who identify themselves as tech-savvy will spend time researching technology. Those who identify themselves as good students will study hard. And students who identify themselves as engineers will probably never leave the Clyde Building. Establishing our identity is important who we are affects how we live our lives, but sometimes the aspects of life that help define our identities change, and we are forced to find a deeper and more fundamental identity. This is a normal experience, as illustrated by my straight-A story, but sometimes this can be traumatic. For example, this summer, I had the opportunity to volunteer at Camp Kesem, a summer camp for kids whose parents have cancer. Now, a major part of who I am A major part of my identity comes from my relationship with my parents. I can't imagine who I would be without these two wonderful individuals. Because I have not experienced cancer in my immediate family, I entered camp a little naive. While there, I was pushing a six-year-old boy on the swing. He was and is the cutest kid. He liked to call himself Wavaba. After I pushed him for a few minutes, he got off and said, Now... I will push my imaginary friend. That's great, I thought. I had an imaginary friend when I was six. So I asked, who's your imaginary friend, Wavaba? And he responded, it's my dad. He died from cancer three years ago. And I didn't know what to say. So I just stood there watching him push that empty swing. But I started to think of those I loved, of my family, of the friends I made at BYU, of the professors who inspired me to study harder and to be better. And indeed, my experience at BYU has been defined mostly by the relationships I have made. If these people disappeared from my life, how would I identify myself? I don't mean to be bleak, and I promise to end on a happy note, but it is an important question to ask. What is it about ourselves that will always remain constant? Or are our identities always liable to change? If we identify ourselves fundamentally as students, who are we after we graduate? If we identify ourselves as doctors, lawyers, philosophers, scientists, or whatever our careers may be, who are we when we experience a career change? Or, as many of the children of Camp Kesem understand, who are we? after losing a loved one. This leads me to what just might be the greatest thing I learned during my stay at BYU. It didn't come from one specific experience. It came by attending religion classes, by going to church, and by volunteering at the temple. It came from asking the children at Camp Kesem what keeps them going after experiencing something as difficult as a parent's cancer. What I learned is this. There is a fundamental part of our identity that continues, no matter what changes we experience in our lives. That fundamental part of our identity is that we are children of the Heavenly Father who loves us. Now, why is this significant? Why bring this up at a graduation? First and foremost, the fact that BYU facilitates learning about a relationship with Heavenly Father is unique among universities. We can't take that for granted. Second, today we become alumni. We are no longer BYU students. We have different identities. This is wonderful, and we should celebrate, but remembering our deeper and more fundamental identity will guide our actions, will give us perspective, and will bring us comfort through the most difficult part of our lives. I'm grateful for BYU, for the experiences it gave me, and for the friends I made. I'm grateful for the opportunity to learn who I am, I'm grateful to be a son of God. As we close this chapter of our lives, let us never forget who we are.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is knowing who we are and where we are going. We've just heard from Michael William Morgan. After the break, we'll return with Diane strong Kraus for Be Anchored in Order to Soar. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Knowing Who We Are and Where We Are Going. Next is Diane strong Kraus, Chair of the BYU Linguistics and English Language Department at the time of this address, titled, Be Anchored in Order to Soar.
3: I'm happy to be with you this morning. You know, when I tell people I'm a faculty member in the Department of Linguistics and English Language, I'm often asked, How many languages do you speak? Or they may react and say, Oh, I'd better watch my grammar. While it's true that linguists study language, they study it in many different ways, not just learning languages or watching for grammar mistakes. So, In the next minute or so, I'd like to give you a taste of what some of the linguists in our department and college do. Some of my colleagues study and describe lesser-known languages, some of which are spoken in North America, such as Ute and Salish languages, along with other languages spoken around the world, such as Quechua, Shinkan, and Marshallese. Other colleagues study older forms of language—like Old, Middle, and Early Modern English—with some examining how language has changed over time. Others investigate the language rules we are taught and which rules are useful to us today. One colleague studies how ambiguity in language—that is, how words or sentences can have more than one meaning—is applied in advertising. Others study how pronunciation, words, and grammar of a language vary from one region or group to another. Another colleague has dedicated many years to researching the language in the Book of Mormon and constructing its original text. Some use technology to solve difficult, complex language problems. Others use databases containing millions of words to find language patterns while others look for words and language patterns used by specific writers. Another group focuses on how languages are learned, particularly second languages, with some investigating the best ways to accurately measure proficiency in a language. This research has been applied to a number of real-world problems, including supporting language preservation projects, creating language frequency dictionaries and academic vocabulary lists, helping missionaries learn languages and assessing their progress, and extracting genealogical facts from texts in a fraction of the time it used to take. These are just a few examples, but as you can see there is much diversity in what my colleagues study. However, one thing they have in common is they are passionate about and engaged in their research and teaching. While they have different stories of how they were led to study linguistics, they all have dedicated much of their time and effort to make their unique contributions to our field. You don't have to be a linguist to be interested in language. You may have noticed differences in your own language or in others' language when you came here to BYU or as you traveled to different places. Some of you may have taken surveys available online that sometimes quite accurately pinpoint the area of the country you are from. These surveys include questions about how you pronounce different words. How do you pronounce these words? Do you pronounce the T in mountain or do you say mountain or mountain? Do you say crayon or crayon or cren? Do you say caramel or caramel or both, depending on whether it's a topping or a candy? The surveys also include questions about words you use. What do you call the little bug that rolls into a ball? A roly-poly? A potato bug? Or something else? How do you refer to a group of people? You all? You guys? Y'all? Or maybe all 'all? (laughs) y'all? We all have differences in our language. There is a natural tendency to describe these variations as being right or wrong, but the majority of linguists I know are more interested in describing or noting these differences without an evaluating judgment. For me, it is simply amazing to hear and see the many variations in language use. Just as each of us is unique in our language use, we are also unique in our interests and the gifts we bring to the area we choose to study—whether it be business, engineering, nursing, science, mathematics, humanities, education, or the arts. Just as my colleagues have done, use your gifts in whatever you choose to do. Make your unique contribution. As I interact with students in my classes and in the office and other ways, I am filled with hope. I see students who are attentive in their studies, who are curious and excited about learning, and who want to apply what they learn to real-life settings. I see students who bring with them unique abilities and experiences. and I believe I can say with confidence that we That is, the faculty, staff, and administration here at BYU see your diligence, determination, and daring to bring about good in the world, which fills us with hope for the present and for the future. A short time ago, my husband Larry and I went for a walk in our neighborhood park on one of those windy days we had this last April. Several people were flying kites, they were multicolored kites, soaring in the sky some swaying back and forth, and one was so high you could barely see it. I thought about how we are like those kites, with the potential to soar in the sky, reaching great heights. I thought of my colleagues and their contributions. I thought about my students and the great possibilities ahead of them. Then later I also thought about examples of people I have known or read about who with their great capabilities, seem to have climbed out of sight like a kite that has broken off from its string. So focused on accomplishing their goals, they become self-promoting, selfish, willing to compromise standards to get what they want. Some may say in these cases the ego takes over. King Benjamin calls it the natural man. Robert L. Millet, who was a professor of ancient scripture here at BYU, describes the natural man this way. Acting without the Holy Ghost, the natural man can be proud, obsessed with self, overly competitive, reactionary, fiercely independent, driven by desires, appetites, worldly acclaim, or one who yields himself to the harsh and the crude. At the other extreme, I thought about examples of people with great promise who have not reached their potential, like a kite that can't seem to get off the ground or one that begins to rise only to fall back down. Sometimes it is because of fear, or they may feel insignificant, discouraged, or anxious. For some reason, they lack the confidence to fully accomplish what they are capable of doing or who they are capable of becoming. One way to counteract either of these potential pitfalls is to be anchored, as a kite is with its string. There are many ways we can be anchored, but may I suggest that one of the most powerful anchors is to know who you are. You are a spirit, daughter, or son of our Heavenly Father. Most of us here today know this. We have heard and sung the song, I am a child of God, as long as we can remember. As young women, we recited the words, We are daughters of our Heavenly Father who loves us, and we love Him. We read in the family, a proclamation to the world, All human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God, Each is a beloved spirit, son, or daughter of heavenly parents, and, as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. This knowledge is not new to us. We are beings dual in nature. We are both physical beings as well as spiritual beings. However, in order for this knowledge to provide an anchor for us, We need to not only know this in our minds, but understand it in our hearts and apply it in our lives each day. Some seem to have this gift and are able to do this with ease. For most of us, however, it takes time and practice to really connect to our true spiritual selves. It takes dedicated focus to make our way past the social masks we wear, the protective defenses we have put up, and the unproductive or negative thoughts in our minds. I encourage you to make every effort to connect with your true self, your spiritual self, for when you are securely anchored with this understanding, you can better negotiate this life in many ways. Today I'd like to focus on five ways that knowing our true selves will help us. First, when we understand who we are, We recognize our own potential. Our true selves are not fearful. The anxiety, the self-doubt, and the other beliefs that stem from our experiences, real as they are and important as they are to our mortal existence, are not the true self. While the trials and challenges we face may be difficult, we are taught that they are needed for our growth, just as a kite needs a strong opposing wind to soar. We can meet these challenges better, however, as we remember our true self, which has an eternal perspective. In a devotional address given here at BYU in March 1999, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland put it this way.
4: Paul says to those who thought a new testimony, a personal conversion, a spiritual baptismal experience would put them beyond trouble, to these he says... Call to remembrance the former days, in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Then this tremendous counsel, which is at the heart of my counsel to you and the title of my remarks this morning, Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, This opposition turns up almost any place something good has happened. It can happen when you're trying to get an education. It can hit you after your first month in a new mission field. It certainly happens in matters of love and marriage. Yes, there are cautions and
3: considerations
4: to make, but once there has been genuine illumination, beware the temptation to retreat from a good thing. If it was right when you prayed about it and trusted it and lived for it, it's right now. Don't give up when the pressure mounts. You can find an apartment. You can win over your mother-in-law. You can sell your harmonica and therein fund one more meal. It's been done before. Don't give in. Certainly, Don't give in to that being who is bent on the destruction of your happiness. He wants everyone to be miserable like unto himself. Face your doubts. Master your fears. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. Stay the course and see the beauty of life unfold for you.
3: I love Elder Holland. When we understand who we are, we not only recognize our own potential—we recognize that others are also spiritual beings with their own potential. We understand that all persons are of infinite worth and that we are not superior or inferior to anyone, no matter their circumstances. Whether they are wealthy or poor, famous or unknown, sophisticated or simple, learned, or uneducated, whether they have physical or mental disabilities, or whether they are just plain difficult to get along with. We respect all, regardless of race, color, creed, cultural differences, educational differences, and behavior. When we see through the eyes of our true self, we see others who they actually are—spiritual sons and daughters of God. When we understand this, we act differently towards others. We become more compassionate and try not to cause harm to others. President Thomas S. Monson gave an example of a missionary who saw others this way. He describes a time when N. Eldon Tanner, who was then an assistant to the Quorum of the Twelve, interviewed a successful missionary asking him about what made him so effective. Quote, The young man said that he attempted to baptize every person whom he met. He said that if he knocked on the door and saw a man smoking a cigar and dressed in old clothes and seemingly uninterested in anything, particularly religion, the missionary would picture in his own mind what that man would look like under a different set of circumstances. In his mind, he would look at him as clean-shaven and wearing a white shirt and white trousers and the missionary could see himself leading that man into the waters of baptism. He said, When I look at someone that way, I have the capacity to bear my testimony to him in a way that can touch his heart. President Monson goes on to say, We have the responsibility to look at our friends, our associates, our neighbors this way. Again, we have the responsibility to see individuals not as they are, but rather as they can become. I would plead with you to think of them in this way. Quote. Third, when we understand who we are, we are willing to forgive. When someone wrongs us, intentionally or not, we may initially feel offended. However, Carrying around a chip on our shoulder becomes a heavy burden to bear, and no one profits by it. With the understanding that we are all dual in nature and that at this moment perhaps the very imperfect, fallible part has taken center stage, we can take a step back, take time to pause, and reach inward to the true self and forgive others as well as ourselves. When conflicts arise, as they certainly will, We take a moment to see through whatever is going on and see the other person as a son or daughter of God. What I am suggesting is that we look beyond the behavior. It doesn't mean that we allow others to take advantage of us or that we condone negative behavior, but it does mean that we give others the benefit of the doubt. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf reiterated this when he said, quote, Each of us is under a divinely spoken obligation to reach out with pardon and mercy and to forgive one another. There is a great need for this Christ-like attribute in our families, in our marriages, in our wards and stakes, in our communities, and in our nations. We will receive the joy of forgiveness in our own lives when we are willing to extend that joy freely to others. Lip service is not enough. We need to purge our hearts and minds of feelings and thoughts of bitterness and let the light and the love of Christ enter in. As a result, the Spirit of the Lord will fill our souls with the joy accompanying divine peace of conscience. Fourth, when we understand who we are, we give and receive freely. When Jesus was teaching the Twelve Apostles as they were about to go out and preach the gospel, He said, Freely ye have received, freely give. Because we understand we are all spiritual beings, we freely give to others, not for recognition, but because we know we are all connected as part of God's eternal plan. Probably the most lasting gifts are when we give of ourselves, our time, our talents, our love, our appreciation— This idea is captured in one of Emily Dickinson's popular poems. If I can stop one heart from breaking, I shall not live in vain. If I can ease one life the aching, or cool one pain, or help one fainting robin unto his nest again, I shall not live in vain. Not only do we give freely, but we also receive freely. We recognize the gifts we receive each day. We recognize the gifts from nature—a sunrise, a rain shower on a summer's day, a blossom. We welcome gifts from others, be it a smile, a listening ear, a shared experience. We receive these everyday gifts and recognize the abundance that surrounds us. Lastly, when we understand who we are, we recognize that our Heavenly Father loves us. We understand more fully the importance of the Atonement of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who opened the door so we can live with our Father in Heaven again. How significant for us as spiritual beings to understand this gift, which increases the meaningfulness of these words from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but to have everlasting life." We understand these words from an eternal perspective, knowing that because of the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we may return again to the presence of our Heavenly Father. In the last General Conference, Elder David A. Bednar said that having faith in Christ and understanding the power of the Atonement brings us hope. He continued by saying, quote, The peace Christ gives allows us to view mortality through the precious perspective of eternity and supplies a spiritual settledness that helps us maintain a consistent focus on our heavenly destination. We all have probably heard the quote, We are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. By divine design, this human experience carries with it challenges as we, imperfect beings that we are, struggle to negotiate these mortal experiences. However, as we gain an eternal perspective by connecting to our true selves, each mortal experience can become a spiritual experience. I now return to our kite analogy. Be anchored in order to soar. Although the words anchor and soar seem to be in direct contrast to each other, the combination brings great strength. I encourage you to take time each day to become securely anchored in the understanding that you are spiritual beings, sons and daughters of a loving Heavenly Father. At the same time, I encourage you to soar, to not be afraid to meet your full potential, and to seek out and make your unique contribution to humanity. Whether it be as a CEO in a large company or the head of a small business, a scientist discovering new ways to combat diseases, or a young mother struggling to know best how to teach her children who they are, or a nurse, a writer, a counselor, a musician. Understanding your true self also allows you to see others as spiritual beings of great worth whom you would not intentionally harm. It allows you to more easily forgive others, to give, and to receive. And above all, it allows you to more fully appreciate the love of our Heavenly Father and the gift of the Atonement. I bear testimony that Heavenly Father loves each of us. We are His children. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Knowing Who We Are and Where We Are Going, with thoughts from Barry Willardson, Michael William Morgan, and Diane Strong-Kraus. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.